Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I am recording this intro and outro in my car because there's crazy construction going on by my house. And now my car is making these weird noises. I'm just going to plug through because I want to get this up and out because it's a fantastic interview to start the year off. Um, my guest is Casey Wayland. He is a writer and a director and a producer. He also performs sometimes, um, but he is... The king, to my mind, the king of the audio drama. He's the creator of the long-running and super popular audio drama, We're Alive. He also produced an audio drama that starred Lawrence Fishburne called Bronzeville. And he wrote a book about the audio medium, how to do audio dramas, basically. It's called Bombs Always Beep. I met him at the L.A. Podcast Festival, and I was so uh, inspired by what he had to say and what he had created that I... um, basically accosted him and made this interview happen. So uh, Casey Wayland is my guest. Before I get to that, though, um, I want to get a plug-in for The Mismatch Game. The comedy game show that I host is coming up again in L.A. on February 2nd and 3rd. That's a Friday and Saturday at the L.A. Renberg Theater, at the L.A. LGBT Center. And you can learn about that at LALGBTCenter.org. All right. Um, I also want to mention that my live cast... Uh, business, which is the sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> um, it's where I interview people about their lives as sort of a legacy thing. And then I edit music together with it and create like this really nice audio heirloom. Uh, I'm going to be in New York city from February 14th to the 23rd, uh, doing some live cast interviews. So if you are out there and want that for you or someone that you love, uh, reach out to me at Dennis at get And you can also learn more about what I do and, and the business at getalifecast.com. Um, what else? Oh, you can buy observation decks now. If you want an observation deck of your own, those are the cards that I draw from, um, for the ending of, of my podcast, the fun, random questions. You can learn about that at dennisanyone.net. They're 25 bucks cause I have to get them printed individually, but they're neat. And, um, yeah, check it out at dennisanyone.net. All right. That's all the, um, plugs for now. So before I, start the interview though with Casey, I wanted to give you guys a taste of what he does because we talk in depth about how special and how detailed his, his productions are with the audio and how they do it. So here is a short clip from the very first episode of We're Alive. You hear that? How can you hear anything over that alarm? It's getting closer. Come on, stop pulling. Uh, guys? Coming! Ah. Shoot the ones dragging down the barbed wire. I'm trying, damn it! Wait! There's too many! Uh, on fire! She's not stopping! Aim for the head! Somebody! Come on, Angel, what the hell are you doing? It's jammed! Yeah, no shit! They're over the fence! Is that the- Get inside! Where? The vault! Move it! Saul, what did you do? Saul, help him with the door! We gotta go! Run! Angel, give me your rifle! Let go. Just let go of it. I'm going to fix it, all right? All right. All right. I hope that gave you a little idea of the uh, the commitment and the, the attention to detail and the artistry involved in what Casey creates. And here, without any further ado, is the interview with Casey Wayland. All right. I'm coming to you from Orange, California. I, I, I took a little bit of a ride down on the 5 Freeway. <laughs> I'm in the office and studio of Casey Wayland. I think of you as, like, the the king of the contemporary oh. audio drama. Uh, well, you, you you produce and write these amazing audio dramas like We're Alive 
and uh, you just had a, another production out earlier this year, uh, Bronzeville, and you've got a book out. So yeah. welcome to Dennis, anyone. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. This is uh, a pleasure. I, I'm really glad we were able to make this work. We met at the convention, uh, like, was it last month? And Yeah, last month. And it's just been, I was really excited to get to know you a little bit more and come on your show and, and uh, kind of let you see where all we make all the Where magic. all the magic happens. <laughs> um, well, when I met you at the LA Podcast Festival, I was scheduled to go to a different panel at that time on Patreon because I, I, I've started using Patreon in the last year. Mm-hmm. And they canceled it, so I ended up in yours. And oh, I'm good. so glad I did <laughs> because it was the best thing I saw the whole weekend. Aww, well, and you. I was so inspired by you by your story because you have – not just created your own universe in terms of storytelling, you've created your own universe in terms of your job and your projects and, and what you do. And um, I'm really fired up by that. And I kind of, <laughs> kind of want to I'm, – I'm thinking about trying to do something in this, in this arena. Well, good. Because we, I think it would be great. Yeah, so there. This, this, the audio drama arena is like – it's one of these things where um, – and I've been telling people this for a long time, and now people are finally listening. It's like uh, – you can go toe to toe with a studio with the audio. It's a it's a level playing field, and anybody who comes to space, you know, like, you, it's just audio. It can be in, indefinite. Audio is infinite in some ways, and visually, you can never match the studios. There's too many people, but this is like, this is like the equal equal ground for you. So we're alive. Was that your first foray into uh, an audio drama, a serialized audio drama? Weirdly enough, it actually wasn't, but. The the only one I was a part of was actually when I was fifteen as an actor. Oh, there you go. Uh, so I was uh, I worked at an audiobook store, coincidentally on the same street we're on now. I didn't think about that. Right uh, down the street in Catella called Talking Book World, and I used to rent audio tapes. Like I was just a person working there, and uh, a mailman came in one day who was a normal listener, and he's like, uh, "Hey, you got a pretty good voice," because I was I was already pretty deep at that time. Right, um, and he's like, "Would you like to be part of an audio drama?" And I'm like. All right, I can do this, and so he cast me in uh, a tsunami radio production called Full Court, Full, yeah, Full Court Press. There you, you got discovered. <laughs> Kinda, this was, this is your destiny. I really, it, I really do believe it. It did. You know what? At that moment, and then looking back on it, I'm like, you know what? I feel like I was kind of meant to come this way. Yeah, I started listening to We're Alive after I met you. I, I hadn't been on my radar. Um, it's this amazing serialized story involving zombies and people dealing with them, and. I started. You started in 2009. I started listening, and I thought, I bet it starts a little rough, and then just gets better as they figure out how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. It was top notch right out of the gate. <laughs> I could not believe the the production of it and the way you use sound and the effects and how it puts you right there. Talk to me about starting that up and your vision for it initially. Sure. Um, so we're live. Kind of. Uh, I, I will say that I didn't start from nothing. At least. Uh, right. I had come from. Uh, film school. I went to Chapman University and I got my degree in writing and directing. And I had actually, one of my main focuses at that time was animation because I'm one of these, you know, people I was like, oh, how can I best tell my stories? What's the best way they're going to grab people? And I was able to do it through some animation. The problem that I was realizing was that I wasn't very good at animation. Like, you loved it, but you weren't that great at no, it. No, I, I mean, I did, I knew 3D animation. I've been working on it since high school. Um, and I, I had some the foundations of sort of how to do everything, but it just like it didn't work too well. But for this my senior project, what I had done is I had done uh, a round robin setup with a whole bunch of actors recording them to do the voices for the animation. And when I was listening back to it, I was like, you know what? This sounds better than it looks on screen. 
why would I want to do this in a visual medium? Why don't I try something out that's just going to work for audio-wise? Right. Why don't I make that my, my milieu? Yeah, exactly. And I was like, this is going to be so much better. I, I had already done sound design for a lot of my uh, projects, and I love doing sound because I could make things so much better with sound. Um, and I was like, you know what? I love doing this. Why don't I try dabbling in just doing audio productions? And uh, kind of went from there. And, and this, the idea of horror where you can't see what's after you was like the perfect uh, device for this audio drama. Yeah, you let the audience's imagination fill in yeah. the, what's so terrifying about it. Um, We're Alive premiered in 2009, is that right? Yeah, May Technically May 4th, 2009. Yeah, and then Walking Dead comes along in 2010. Were you like, ugh? Or was yes. it like, okay, how did you feel about that? That was a big hit, actually. Yeah. Um, because for me, I wanted to be the survival horror on TV. Right. Um, I thought at the time audio drama would be a great way, a great avenue to get my product out there, establish myself as a writer, as a creator, and be like, okay, I know how to do this. No one's going to believe that I know how to do this unless I do it myself and prove it. So I started doing that on my own, and then literally, like, I'm, I'm to chapter, like, three or four, and then someone uh, talks to me in the hallway as I'm, as I'm passing. He's like, hey, do you see the, the, the new zombie show that's coming out? And I'm like, what? Yeah. And it rocked everything. Like, I was like, uh-oh, my whole plan is gone now, because if this is successful, no one's going to want to put this on TV. And I was absolutely right. Even now, I learned I'm still absolutely right. And yet, it became a phenomenal success as an as an audio drama. Yeah, by itself, I was like, "Oh, if that isn't working, try this." It was like one of those scenarios with animation. It's like, "Well, this route didn't work, but this one did. Let's keep going in that direction." And yeah, you just kind of be flexible with the idea. Now, I read that you the original inspiration for We're Alive had to do with your experiences serving in the army in Iraq. Is that right? Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of little pieces that come from from a bit of everywhere, but. Um, for the most part, um, the idea for We're Alive kind of stemmed from the tower. The tower is like the main character in the first story, and it actually came from um, there was a hotel in Iraq that they – that's what they did was they put a whole bunch of soldiers in it, and they would secure it. And I was like, oh, this is like the perfect zombie scenario. You only have to have minimal uh, personnel secure the bottom, but then everybody could live inside of it, and it would be essentially protected. I was like, oh, this would be a great zombie survival story. So yeah. like, that was the, the tower was sort of the first character. And then once I got home and sort of started developing it further and figuring out who all the characters were, it kind of blossomed from there. So you were in the army, right? Yeah. And what, what were you – and you went to Iraq. Were you in Baghdad? I was. Uh, I was in the, – the areas that I was in was I was in Al-Ramadi, uh, Fallujah, Baghdad, and then I spent some time in Anjaf as well. So I was a little bit of everywhere depending on where they needed me. Did you find that the emotional experience of, of being over there um, resonated when you started to write oh, great We're thing. Alive? I, I, one of the big big things, I think, is that uh, you don't know how people are going to react in these high-tensive situations unless you get to one. Right. And um, it was one of these things where it's like these peop- everyone argues about stuff. Like when people's lives are on the line, it's conflict. It's constant conflict, and it's elevated, and it's like these are the raw emotions of everything. But then you also get to moments where, like, people are just slack John, you know, having a great time because – and literally, like, we just got mortared a few minutes earlier, but we're still moving on as if it's just – you know, we're just – we're not dead, so let's keep moving. So it's, it's one of these things where it kind of gave me a basis and foundation of, of realizing 
you know, the reality of humanity in that way and be able to transpose it sort of in my own story. And how people behave in those kinds of situations. Yeah, and, and weirdly enough, like, I've actually gotten reviews backwards, like, in these scenarios, nobody would be arguing. It's like, no, trust me. They would, people, this is how people are. They just, you know, will, when your life is on the line, people will react like it is. Did any of your fellow soldiers listen to We're Alive and reach out to you, or are you still in touch with them? Some are. I, I'm, 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 in, I'm still friends with some of them. Uh, our unit was pretty small to begin with, so there's a few of them that have sort of gone on and done their own things. But, uh, yeah, a lot of them have listened. Some of them, uh, some of them are actually little bits of inspirations for certain characters I'm as sure. Well. Um, whereas, you know, certain officers, like, you know, transpired into the story in some ways, and and there's a lot of little things that sort of have come about um, sort of from those relationships inside the story. Um, but for the most part, some I haven't really gotten too, many, uh, too much feedback from them, to be honest. I, I think that uh, it's the audio drama th- thing, especially with, with uh, you know, that my unit is it's hard for somebody to initially sit down and listen. Like, to get them started and understanding what it is, especially back then when we first started, it wasn't very well established. So it's, it's kind of hard for people like, an audio drama, is that, that's like a book on tape, right? So it was hard for that initial listen to start. Well, what I noticed myself is I've listened to books on tape before. I listen to a lot of newsy podcasts, fun podcasts. This requires a level of attention that's a, a, a step above that other stuff. So I was wondering, what do you hear from your fans about how they listen to it? Is it something they just focus on and do nothing else? Is it something they do in the car, on their commute? Because I noticed for me it's a different experience. It is. Um, the, I don't try and cheapen the experience by repeating things over and over and over, meaning that you might miss a detail that's, that's important if you're not paying attention. Um, so I sort of, in that way, I don't really like to handhold the audience um, and I think a lot of the time, also back in the day, they did that. They would do redundant things like click the gun sound effect and, oh, he's got a gun. Well, this is the same information twice. Why don't we just do it with sound effects and be more efficient and not have that horrible dialogue? Um, so that was sort of the – you had to sort of simplify things a little bit and not handhold the listeners a, a, a little bit. So there are some, some listeners who actually have – um, more audio bandwidth. And so, and so they can actually handle, like, they're doing dishes and things like that. It sort of depends on what you're doing. There's some people who can listen to us at work, and other people are like, you know what, I can't do anything else. I just have to listen, sit in the dark, and just let the whole world envelop me around, uh, around me and just feel like I'm in the story. And so, it's, it's, so each person's listening experience is different, but that's the cool thing is anybody can listen in their own way. I was reading in your book about some of the fan stories, like somebody that was going in for eye surgery. Mm-hmm. Is that right? And they were able to use the story to sort of lose themselves while they're 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 going going through, through this. Yeah. That's incredible. I, I had, you know, weirdly enough, like two days ago, I had another one where somebody said they uh, got scabies uh, in their like they couldn't, oh my god like, couldn't open their eyes uh, during the the process of recovery, and they had they they basically got through it by listening to us. Like it let them immerse themselves in our world and sort of forget what's going on in front of them. And it's, that's like, I think that people who are visually uh, interested in mediums like TV and stuff like that, they don't think about that. They don't think about people who, like our visually impaired audience is huge because this is their movies. They get right. to experience something that, you know, is new to them in, in a big way. And I think that's kind of a really cool avenue to explore. Well, and there was so lovingly put together just like the, the way the sounds are you could just tell that you guys want it to be the best that it could possibly be 
and that was your vision from the start. Where did you get the initial money to start up? <laughs> um, so they're not in existence now, but the original advertisers that were attached and in our feed, I kid you not, uh, our first sponsors was my, my brother worked as a real estate agent. He sponsored us for like $150. My, right. My uncle uh, owned uh, or still owns a company called Reef Systems, which is a, an aquarium service, and he gave us uh, another $150 for another episode. So, like, we were, like, very little money in the beginning, and that kind of paid for pizza. Right. And, and you know, in trying to give some the, the, the cast some money to, to travel in to record, but really it was just a lot of work on uh, the production side donated. Like, I would... I edited everything myself in the beginning because that's what you had to do. And then as you get a little bit more money, you can maybe hire another editor and things like that. And then trying to train people in the medium got difficult. Now, I remember from the panel at the festival, you said that after the first season, you, you didn't have a lot of listeners. And then just suddenly, boom, something happened and it exploded overnight. Talk to me about that. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. So um, I've always had this perspective of if you build it, they will come. Meaning that like, if you just create something that an audience is going to really attach them to, to and like really as much entertainment per minute. Like a lot of people like them. Oh, like we want to make a huge, an hour long thing, which really they only have enough content and interest in an audience to fill maybe 15, 20 minutes. And they just spread it out over a long period of time. I didn't want to do that. I want to have something that was just huge and impactful. So we, I just was like, okay, just make sure the back catalog is great. Just keep on going, keep on building that story. Um, make it good and eventually they will come and then it just started to happen like one person started to tell another person and then we had uh, like very early on through IGN Greg Miller was listening to us uh, who was an IGN editor at the time and then what he, is IGN? IG, uh, uh, the Internet Gaming Network oh I right on what it stands for um, and so they uh, so he got some people listening to it Zune we blew up on Zune uh, when that was a thing and that network went away but uh, it was just like all these different ways of people just spreading the word. Like we haven't advertised anything. That was the crazy thing. And we still don't have enough. Uh, we haven't really advertised much of anywhere still. It's just spreading through word of mouth. People finding us organically in the ways. Now, how many seasons has there been of We're Alive? Because I know there's also this sort of spinoff. Technically five. Technically there's, there's five. The four, uh, there's four seasons in the main story of survival. And then the fifth season is really locked down, if you want to look at it that way. And then our sixth season is Gold Rush coming up. And then our seventh is Scout's Honor, which is the next one after that. Wow. Have you um, recorded Gold Rush yet? We have pieces of it uh, done. Uh, I can't give the status of too much of it, but we the script is already written. We're finalizing some of the details with funding to get some uh, some other names attached. But that thing is it's lock, stock, and ready to roll. And I'm actually working on uh, with the writer for the next one, which is Scout's Honor. So we're always... I'm always working ahead of the production clock for the next project, if that makes sense. One of the things that you do as a rule from your book I read is that if you have a scene with four actors, you make sure they're all there interacting in the room together at the same time as oh, yeah. opposed to having this person drop in their line. Whenever you see like documentaries about behind the scenes of these big animated movies, it's mm -hmm. like these big movie stars come in and say their lines and then you don't see them. Yeah. And your stuff, it feels like they're together, and it really does bring you something special. Yeah, it's real. It's, yeah. There's you – can't, you, you can't put audio – you can't per, put performances in together like a puzzle. Right. They just don't work that way. If you, if you record separately and put it together, it's going to sound assembled. It's not going to sound organic, and it's not going to sound like it should. Um, and also with these other productions like animation, they have a visual to rely on. It's like they'll have – 
people animate around their voices and make it feel like they're interacting with each other because there's a visual to represent that. Right. You can give them a look in their eye or something. Or, yeah. You know, you could do anything visually. And even then, they'll have the actors come back in and then re-record their lines that didn't work. And then they'll be like, oh, okay, that works. And a lot of times they'll do that just because of celebrities, you know, whatever it is, their uh, availability and things like that. That happens a lot. But it just it doesn't work in the audio spectrum when it's only audio. It doesn't like you need to have those subtleties and nuances of everyone because if their energy levels don't match or if they're not at the same like cadence, it, it, it just there's so many ways that an actor and performance can disconnect. Um, that will lose the image in someone's mind. And the, the aural image that needs to be presented in someone's brain is so fragile that if you, if you don't you know, contribute in the right way, it can be shattered very easily. Where are you when these recording sessions are happening? Are you in with the actors? Are you in the booth? I used to be in the booth, but then right. I realized the booth is bad <laughs> in a way. The booth is bad. Okay. It's just, it, yeah, it's just it, – it's – you become just like the recording sessions that are remote. It like you're not in the same space as the actors. And then I realized, oh, if I can be on the stage with the actors and I have my own headsets and they're listening in to their voices, I can I can give them directions more organically. There's not this like squelch coming over a microphone or like a can you uh, can you do that again? Uh, pick up at the it's just it's just it's so interruptive in the process. And I felt that um, when I moved from the booth to the stage. Everything changed. I felt like I got to be a director for the first time. And I felt that the component that was missing, uh, it was there, but it could have been better, was direction. Cause, and that, that was something that uh, sort of opened up new worlds. Is like in the audio drama world, having an audio director can really make a difference in a scene. And then we, everything just got better from then. Talk to me about, you have a whole lot of pages to get, probably not a lot of time with your whole cast. As a director... How much are you working on performance or you sort of trust the actors and, and that was good? You know, is there a part of you that's a little bit more like perfectionist? Like, oh, you know what? I feel like that, that moment could be better or something. Like, how do you decide what's good enough and what you need to redo when you've got so much to get done? Um, part of it is there is a give and take. Um, yeah. And there, there are moments that cannot work if the performance is not correct. Um, you have to know what those are coming in. Um, if there are, if there's like, if they're talking about something that's really simple and like, you know what, that performance is kind of okay. It, it works. And it, it, this scene isn't that vital. You can kind of sometimes move on and, and sometimes edit around some of those things. Um, but it's one of these things where you, as a director, you kind of have to just be actively listening and, and sort of pre-editing in a way and, and seeing like, okay, is this going to work? Do I believe that they are actually doing this right now? Um, and a lot of it comes from just having the experience of just being an active listener and having a good ear for that sort of thing. Right. And that was something that I kind of developed as a director over time that I found was invaluable to myself is like being able to understand and be like, no, that's not going to work in audio. We need to do that one again. And like even on the set of uh, Bronzeville and working with mega, mega actors who are huge and um, who, uh, who have an, an understanding of acting already – they don't have my ear. They don't have, they can't hear how this is going to portray if like, oh, oh no, that was too fast. The, the, the audience is not going to understand what's going on to that. Or, you know what, this portion right here when you were saying this, it didn't, didn't make sense to me. Like it didn't communicate very well orally. Let's maybe change these words around a little bit or, or maybe come at it a different direction. So it's, it's one of these things that you kind of have to sort of develop a sense for over time. And right. directors do it with film. They just, not as many in the audio world. 
Right, and you you sort of wrote the book on it, literally. So, yeah. and that, that's sort of why I wrote the book is yeah. to sort of is to help others sort of start to become you know more invested in this because for a long period of time, uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of corporate mentality thinking of it like you can record these people separate and assemble them and it's going to work, right? No, this is an art form. This is theater. This isn't just you know that's why I I use the word audio theater. Not the word audio drama, because audio drama can be anything, but audio theater is is to me something different. Um, going back to when you're recording and, and watching the actors, li- are you closing your eyes? No, no, you're you know. And- well, it's it's that's just because I'm watching because sure. I get a little bit more of their performance and seeing what's going on. I'm also looking at the script and looking at them. So it's one of those things where it's like if I was to close off entirely, I might be missing some pieces in a way. If I were to go and watch a session from the booth and through the window. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the reading of the lines that I think I would expect. What's something I might see that would surprise me or, or seem offbeat? A technique that you guys do that that creates something and it's like, oh. Yeah, that, I'd say that would be the physicality stuff that we bring in. Like, um, if I have somebody, um, like, this happened in uh, one of the later episodes of We're Alive with, uh, there are two characters fighting in the back of a truck. Like, literally, the guy is, like, restraining the girl, like, with an arm behind her neck as, as they're fighting. I did that scene together with them doing that with their feet planted to get that reaction to get those two people on the microphone struggling and fighting with each other because um, those two performances were so entwined that if i was to separate them uh in some way without the physicality it would feel like it was not real right it's, it changes your voice when you're making that kind of an exertion exactly like the 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 human voice is an instrument and it has to be manipulated in a way to best portray that. Like if I was to scrunch up my voice right now and like, you know, you, you can hear the, the, the physicality of it. So when somebody, if somebody's talking on the ground and they're talking into a floor, their voice reacts differently. It's very odd because it's just, um, it's, it's like you're holding the A or B key of a, of a keyboard. Like it just, it just reacts differently. That's so cool. So with, with the fight, were you on them physically or were oh, they on no. each other? They were on each other. <laughs> well, sometimes actually as a director, I will um, – I am I am a hands-on director, but I also am somebody who is very aware of actor's comfortability. So um, I will give an actor – like say, for instance, I have them struggling against a door. Sometimes I will be uh, – I will hold them back. Like I'll be like, well, are you comfortable with me putting my hands on your shoulder and giving you some feedback to fight against? And they'll be like, sure, go ahead. And they'll give them that. Um, sometimes it, it'll, it'll come in different ways between the actors. I'll have them close and on two mics that are close to each other. It all depends on sort of what the scene requires of them. Um, and sort of it, it, some experimentation has to come about. Because I've actually done them sometimes where the physicality does not work. Like uh, I can give it, for instance, we had our actors actually inside of a tub recording the water scenes from season two um, when they're in the ocean. And I got some stuff in the water that worked great, and then some stuff that just did not. So I had them do one in the water, and then one without. Just play it safe. Just That's play it so safe. Cool. And then I, some work, some didn't. Do they do things with space? If somebody's farther away or something, are they? Do they step away from the microphone, or is that all? Some, somewhat. Like if you're calling out, like somebody, um, giving yourself a little distance on the mic, like, "Hey, Johnny, uh, we need you to go over there and uh, do that thing." There's, there's some of that that will like. It's a practical effect on the mic, but it actually. Um, the way that I delivered that line just now comes across on the mic. So we'll, we'll change the volume of it, and I can make you sound further away or closer based on like EQ effects and reverberation afterwards. But really, if I have a little bit more to work with on the mic, I'll get both. And sometimes some voices work better with the step back and call out. 
and some work better if I do it in post. So it's kind of a mix and match. You, you just do what works best. I love the idea of, of finding footsteps for each character. Like, <laughs> that's not how she would sound. Mm-mm. That's how she would sound. Like, the choices that have to be made in that way is so interesting. Yeah, like, um, like all of Bronzeville, I did all of Lawrence Fishburne's footsteps. Because I moved differently, and I had different shoes depending on the scene of what he was doing in those scenes. Um, and then Grayson, who was doing the sound design uh, as well, uh, he would do the, the footsteps of different characters that would have a different perspective. Like he did Jimmy, and his, his, he was smaller than me, so he'd be lighter footsteps and have a different uh, sort of way that he would perform it uh, than, than I would. But I definitely would not have any of the voice actors do any of the footsteps because – it's just a totally different technique. It's something that happens after. Yes. And yeah. actually, it's a, it's a skill that you have to learn. Like, you have to walk differently for Foley because you have to walk in place, and you actually have to put your heel down first in order to get the two-step of a footstep. I love Foley stories about how, like, hitting a watermelon sounds like being punched or whatever those <laughs> random things are. Have you ever discovered something that sounds like something else that works so perfectly? Um... It's weird because the actuality of stuff is not, like, real, like you're saying. You're like, like, you get the real thing, and you're like, that doesn't sound right. It sucks. Like, I, I filled a bottle of water to create a Molotov cocktail and threw it at the ground, and it went shatter, and it sounded like crap. Right. Like, it was, like, it was so deadening, and the water had actually, like, quelched the entire shatter sound effect. So, like, I'm like, people are not going to think that this is actually a Molotov cocktail. They're going to think this is something else. So, like, that's the instance where it's like, no, I had to do an empty glass layered on top of that with a fireball sound effect with, like, uh, with a whoosh sound coming in for the flame. And, like, so all these sort of, like, elements, you have to sort of, like, create them uh, combined. Like, uh, another instance is when I'm smashing a gun. Uh, obviously, I couldn't smash a gun, so I smashed a caulking gun instead and used that and, like, broke bits of, of uh, metal and put them together and... It's also, like, not just one sound effect ever. It's always, like, pieces of them can kind of come together. And you went to great lengths to get a baby. Yes. I read that on your website. <laughs> like a newborn. I did. Actually, uh, my uh, – the story called – this was something weird because, actually, I had come, I'd come up with a storyline, like, years prior. And it required me to actually find and record a newborn that was uh, that was just born in order for it to work in the audio. And I'm like – I have all these sound effects from sound effects libraries. And if you've ever worked with sound effects libraries, they're crap. Well, sometimes they're crap. Um, But specifically with, like, characters and stuff like that, they're very generic. They've been used a thousand times. And you're never going to get enough of a performance to actually fill in the space that you need. Like, on screen, if there's a baby in the background using a sound effect of a baby that's stock, that makes sense. But no, I needed a baby that was the same character the entire time with varying different you know, levels of intensity. So, um, I, uh, my brother was having uh, a child at the time and, um, I convinced him to let me put a recording device in the uh, delivery room. So that I got some of the zero day old, uh, sounds of a baby being born, uh, and that initial scream. And then, uh, several days later when he came home, I did it more in a, a more closed environments when they changed his diaper and things like that. And it was what you wanted. It's what you needed. Exactly. And it was the same character. It was that, that recurring baby that sounded like that same baby every time because that authenticity was necessary. Because it's a character. It's like a dog. We use the same dog for, uh, for the dog character that we did throughout the whole thing because you can't just rely on a library that you know, has only pieces. Yeah, it's got to be the same dog. Yeah. That attention to detail is amazing. Thank you. Where, where does that come from for you? Is that always how you've been about 
things that you're working on, or is it something about this medium that brings that out for you? Um, I'm one of those people that's like, why not? <laughs> like, right. Why not put the energy in into it to get that authenticity? Like, um, even writing, like to, to write about Catalina, I had to go to the island. Like, I took my writing uh, partner t- with me to the island, and we went across everything to discover everything together. So we knew that that environment. Lockdown, same way. I actually went to a jail. I read that. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, and then like to to see and discover on my own what these areas felt like and were. Because if I'm going to try and re-illustrate them with audio or storylines, I needed that authenticity to make it believable. Because already there's a suspension of disbelief that has to come with the audio that why not go that extra mile? Because it, it just would help make a better product in the end. What's something that you observed in the jail that went right into the story that you never would have found out otherwise? Uh, there are no buttons in the elevator. Really? None. You cannot control an elevator in a jail from the inside. It is all controlled by Central. You have to – somebody else controls it for you. And I was like, oh, my God, that's a perfect moment. There's a, there's, there is a, a climax moment where somebody's waiting in the, the elevator, they can't do anything, and they have to rely on somebody else to get to that button. I'm like, this is the most tension you can put in a scene, and it would never existed if I hadn't have been there myself. That's so interesting. And no, you would never know unless you were actually there. So after doing Real Life for several seasons, you get this opportunity with uh, Brownsville. Yes. To work with Lawrence Fishburne, Lorenz Tate. How does that happen? That was kind of a fluke of nature. Um, maybe a little bit of fate, who knows? Um, but it was one of these things where I had sort of, uh, I'd done We're Alive and I was, was working on, uh, I think, I think I had done Lockdown at that point too, uh, meaning that we did a, uh, Kickstarter campaign for it and was successful. Uh, we had raised, uh, somewhere of like $55,000 for that campaign. Um, and it was great because people, uh, saw that this was a viable medium. People were willing to pay for it. And it also sort of set us apart of like, oh, we were one of the biggest, you know, crowdsourcing funding campaigns for an audio drama, I think up until that point. Um, and so it kind of gave us validity. And uh, so it just happened to where they made some the, – the company involved made some phone calls. And uh, Paradigm, which was the agency which was trying to find the, the person for this medium, uh, gave me a call. And I said, uh, yeah, I'd love to come meet and went and talked to them about the medium, about what I do and my perspective and – uh, that sort of, I guess, the authenticity and the way that I did things, they loved and sort of said, all right, let's do this. Let's, let's merge this independent audio world with the Hollywood talent and see how, uh, how they come together. Now, uh, Bronzeville is a totally different world than We're Alive. Oh, it's, yes. it's, uh, when is it set? It's post-World War II? 1947, yeah. Chicago, uh, in the black metropolis. So they already had the writer for this, the idea for this, and they came mm-hmm. to you because you know how to do these things. Yeah, I was their, uh, their sort of conduit or, or their interpreter of how to, to do something in this medium, um, all the way down to the script phase. Like when Josh, uh, Josh Olson, who was the writer, uh, an amazing writer, I was very uh, pleased to work with uh, another like I've worked with different writers and like, it's so awesome to work with somebody who's really talented. Um, and, uh, I was able to communicate with him like certain things that don't work in audio dramas, like some things like, Oh, this is a warning, warning sign here. And this is something you have to be observant of here. Like, uh, there was a portion in like a script, like a, for instance of like, it was written in that, uh, that, uh, a couple black guys came and, and kidnapped a girl and, and took her into the car. And I looked at that and I was like, that's, not 
done in dialogue. Like we, we won't know that these people are African-American unless we have some sort of way of establishing that. I mean, a person's voice might be able to tell you a little bit about their race, and it does. I mean, admittedly, it, it is, is a portion of it. But there's also some other aspects you sort of have to think about as well and, and making sure you set that up. And maybe if you don't tell it then, it can be established in the very next line or something like that. So all these ways of sort of like forcing the visualization of something. Well, I started listening to um, Bronzeville. There's not a lot of narration. There's no. sort of scenes, and you kind of have to put it together. It's, it's very um, – all of the projects that I've listened to that, that you've worked on really respect the audience to kind of get it. Yeah, there's no, not a lot of hand-holding um, because you have to – I mean, it, it is one of these things where you could, you know – Put a dialogue in there and put a huge amount of narration. But what happens with narration is it kills the action. There's, the momentum of the story sort of stalls out in a way that, like, uh, the it's it's almost like uh, narration in a movie is sort of a crutch. Same way with audio. Yeah. It's like, why can't you find a way to better do this through the actors or through sound effects or something like that? So if there's ever in a moment, I won't shy away. I don't want to jump into narration unless I absolutely have to to communicate something. And... And I'll do it in a way that's like as uh, so that I can actually have the actors, you know, it's an alley-oop. Like here's the narration so that they can do the slam dunk with their own performance. Um, I get the feeling with We're Alive that the actors are, are a tight group and it's sort of we're all in this together kind of thing because <laughs> they're recording scenes together. Mm -hmm. When you get big stars in there, how does that dynamic change? Or does it? It does. It does. Um, we're Alive was an anomaly because um, – I came into it, and I never really wanted to bring in big-name actors. I was like, I want – well, I would love to at that time, but I was like, you know, it started out with very little budget, and, and to approach those people at that point, I was not established. Um, but it was one of these things where talent can sometimes you know, throw off the dichotomy. It, it can it, – it is a little bit more of a, a different balance. But what it can do is it can inspire people. Because uh, something that I, I noticed with, with Lockdown, because we brought in um, Jeremy's character, was played by Stephen Weber. Uh, he was really famous from Wings. I mean, an amazing, well-established actor who's been in uh, so many different projects. And he came in uh, with such a uh, you know, professionalism and experience that it just elevated everybody else. Um, and I think the trick of it is, and the, the balance that I had to find in Bronzeville was to find the way in the scheduling to make sure that everyone was reading with each other. And that is the inherently the most difficult part whenever working with these talented people is, is like you're dealing with people who are like, Oh, I'm going from my huge budgeted uh, visual you know, series to your audio drama, which I'm, you know, not getting nearly as, as much. And, you know, my agent really, you know, won't get as, as a bigger percentage on this project. Cause it's very small. It's very independent, but, so that it, it is hard to sort of find that balance. But I will say this much. Once these professional actors get in the space and start getting into it, they love it. Because they don't get to spend as much time and intensity in a character and stay in character than in this medium. And I think that once the word gets out and people understand, like, how cool it is to be in this and read with each other, uh, they're, they're all on board. Because it becomes real acting and real theater. Do you remember a moment where an actor came up to you after and said, wow. That was a rush, or like how they described it, uh, like Lawrence Fishburne, for I think, example. I think Lawrence did. I think he he just uh, people came up to him uh, and and was like, "This is this is in just incredible." Like other actors would would tell him that because he he took the directing role on certain days, and I felt pride because I'm hearing it because I'm in the room with them as as the, sort of the assistant director, and I'm like, "Yeah, 
all right, they're, they're, they're really into this. They love it. And they, they understand the process and, and really it's, it is unique, um, in a way that like, I think once people see that there is film and there are books and this is the in-between between them that you can do so much more, uh, it's just limitless. I mean, the world has so many ways to consume media that like having a non-visual spectrum is a very powerful delivery method and it's viable. Uh, you know, very old radio days died, but this is something new and it can be, you know, big again. Well, a creative person like myself or you or like you can create a whole world. It's not like we're going to shoot like a sizzle reel and hope mm -hmm. for something. You could do the whole thing. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's why with We're Alive, um, like I could do anything with a story. I could I could take my characters to Boulder, Colorado or Fort Irwin. I could change the location. Yeah, you didn't have to take them no. into to New Orleans for the tax breaks. No, no, I didn't have to do any of these things. Uh, it was all like. I can explore anything with the characters and like do it all quickly, efficiently, and also not take up a lot of time because we're live. The main series, just thinking of the amount of recording sessions we had, like it is 48 chapters. Um, but I can say that I believe we only had 24 recording sessions, period. That's only 24 days for 48 hours of material. And that is uncannily and unheard of in other mediums. And the actors don't have, a, have to do as much commitment to it. So you have them do it multiple times regardless. Oh, yes. Just uh, for safety. So you've well, got it. As a rule of thumb, I always say that um, you should record a scene at least twice because you're going to need those pieces. You're going to need those you know, pickups. What if a one word is off? If one word is off, people can get lost. Like if, if we're missing an entire plot point here because he's mispronouncing like the jail – or something like that. If like two times, wait, what? What? Like something's murmured or mumbled, um, you might miss uh, an important element that won't come across in this, this series. And one of my big sayings behind the medium in, uh, is that confusion is the killer of audio dramas. Meaning that if an audience is lost at any time, they're not going to be able to track what's going on. So like being able to do it twice is a safety net, but being able to do it a third or fourth time just really enhances the performances. You're represented by Paradigm now, yes. right? And how did that come about? I think it must be so gratifying to create something on your own and then have them interested in you. Yeah. Because I've tried so long to get them to give a shit about what I do, you know? And I so do before, it too. would be so delicious to be like, oh, well, I think I can make it on Wednesday. You know <laughs> what I mean? Please tell me you kind of basked in that sort of valid. I don't know, validation is the right word, but no, it's, I, I you know what is, I'm saying. It, it is validation. It is, uh, I think this is the right word because. To be honest, before this, I was throwing my name out there to try and get agents to help me do this. Um, and I was trying to get my name out there and be like, okay, guys, I'm, I'm an audio drama producer. I've done these things. I would love to I – have, I have more scripts and more pilots that I want to get out for television. Um, is anybody interested in, in, in you know, representing me? I mean, you're more than welcome to the 10% the of the things that I do. If I, I really want someone to help, and I didn't find anybody. Like – um, it, it's, it's that cold call. Nobody, nobody wants you. You have to wait for them. You have uh, to do your thing and, and wait for them to get it. Yeah, exactly. But you did it. That's awesome. It, it, and it worked out. And that's, it's the, the, the thing is like, I've always gone back to is if you build it, they will come. Um, and now you've written this book, bombs always beat. Yeah. And what's the subtitle creating the modern audio theater or something along those lines. Excuse me. I'm, that's all right. I'm talking for a little while. It's basically the how to do it. It's the it's the Bible. Yeah, it, it's, there's not a book like this. No, it's until yours. There there were a couple out there, and I actually have them on my shelves, and I've read them. 
a lot of them are analytical observations of previous productions. So I came along and saw that and said, okay, well, I have all these techniques and tricks. I have all my uh, technical workflows that I've sort of established in the medium of how you can use the tools to really tell the story in a proper way. It lets me communicate with people that may not uh, be, I may not be working with. Because I do want to see more uh, and better productions come up in this medium because um, I'm bored with a lot of them, <laughs> honestly. Well, what impressed me about you in the panel and talking to you and you here today, some people, I think, achieve success in a certain medium, especially in entertainment, and pull the ladder up after them. They don't want any competition. Yeah. They don't, and you're so generous about the form. You, it feels like you kind of want to be an ambassador for the form. I and do. you yeah. want to help people, and, and I'm... That's really impressive. It's, it's, Why is that important to you? It's, it's important for a couple of reasons. Um, I would say in some ways, I have to admit, it is, not, uh, it is some self, self-serving. Because if I'm the only person creating in the, at, at a certain level in the medium and it takes for everyone else a long time to come up and you know, improve their performances and know how to direct people, it doesn't help the medium at all. And it can't help you know, me push the medium in a direction that I want to go at. Because you're not going to have a show out all the time. You no. need other shows to be strong so that people make it part of their media diet, that they get into mm-hmm. the form. You need to develop fans, not just of your stuff, but of the whole medium. Yeah, and that's actually working. Like the, the, this, this model, even before the book has been out, um, has been working. I have a lot of people who have created audio dramas who are have insp- I was in, the, their inspiration. Because when we first came out, I mean, in 2009, there was a handful now there's hundreds. I mean, it is much more competitive. Right. I will say that much. Like getting an audio drama out there uh, is is a competitive market. But I still think that it is not in the sense that if you actually create something that's good, it will rise to the top. Why the title "Bombs Always Beep"? Um, early on in uh, "We're Alive," I created a moment uh, where Bert uh, and Michael's they set up a claymore outside their uh, environment uh, to kill a whole bunch of zombies. What's a claymore? A claymore is a bomb. Okay. Uh, it is a uh, anti-personnel mine that you set up that sends out ball bearings. It has explosives on one side. Um, and it's, it's a special setup. And then I, and, and I did it, and I feel, felt like, okay, this is not really interesting. So when I was writing the book later, I referred back to this moment in my head, and I was like, oh, you know what? This is a good title, meaning that bombs always beep. So that, that if you're trying to convey something in the audio world – you have to get some sort of audio signature. So if you have a bomb in the world, to get it really into the listener's head that it's there, you've got to make it beep. In any of your projects, have you done a sex scene? Um, I have. What's it like? Um, but I uh, sort of cut it. Okay. Um, because it, I did something similar in where I've tried to do like a kissing scene. It didn't work too well. But I actually do believe that it is uh, a very viable option to do in uh other stories i just haven't told those stories yet i think that it's possible it's do oh, it's yes. possible to do it in a way that's convincing uh, that doesn't embarrass people embarrass yes. the listener or I isn't actually, cheesy i actually want to go even a step further but i i believe that there is an area of audio erotica that we have not reached yet because i believe that you could really like the the, the touching of people's skin it's hard to pick up on this mic but like the intimacy, and you could actually recreate a sex scene better than it's performed with just the audio of it right. and make it very sexy and very intimate. Um, and a lot of people are actually connected more auditorily to, uh, to sex than visually. Right. And I think if you do it right in the right way, uh, it can be very powerful. Um, we're Alive just wasn't the, the medium yeah. in the story for that. But I, I, I'm a firm believer that 
We'll see more of it. Um, there's also a fine line of not doing it too cheesy. Right. Talk to me about the part of your job that has to do with building fan base. and uh, oh, the hard part. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or it's a big part of what you do here. Yeah. It's, and it's very, um, it's very probably humbling to see how much it means to people, but also it's a job. It is. Um, nobody cared about We're Alive in the beginning. It, like, it, it's true. Did Our, you think it was – did you have moments where you're like, oh, man. Yeah. That's, that, that comes with every project, though. Right. Like, um, I have I have put up on YouTube some amazing stuff that I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. Like I did a short film called The Barn, which I did before We're Alive um, as a senior project. And I'm like, oh, man, this was really great. It was really good horror. Um, it was a short scene. But, oh, man, it could do so, much th- so many things, but it doesn't, didn't do anything. And I was like, all right, well. I got to try something else. So in, in a way, sort of telling the long-form story and spending time with the characters and understanding that, oh, people's investment in your project and understanding the relationship as an author and an audience and respecting that relationship both ways makes better uh, engagement for an audience. And also it lets them know that it is uh, authentic and they'll be more involved and they'll be behind you all the way. What's something surprising that came to you in your life out of this show that you never would have thought of, like a, a travel opportunity or fans doing this or that? It's just something that you were like, wow, uh, I can't believe that I'm experiencing this. Some fans have gotten married from they, the show. They met each other and got married? Through the show, yeah. Wow. Uh, they, like, the, the, the show, um, they both loved it, and they both like, communicated on the forums, and like, they, it just grew into something. Um, you have a great way of sometimes coming up with names. <laughs> I was like, that is genius. You go to cemeteries. Cemeteries, yeah. Because like, uh, sometimes if I don't have the right name, I can't even keep going. You know, yeah. it's like you've got to have the right name for somebody. Yeah, cemeteries uh, Cemeteries is a great resource for names because um, a lot of times beginning writers will be like, go to name generators and just you know hit the generate button like 20 times until, until they figure it out. But that's not how names are, are chosen. Like... Your parents were influenced by a time, a place, a heritage. A name of a person is so important, and it's your audio uh, identifier as like someone's face. It's how you identify a project. And if their name is wrong, it's going to feel like their identity is wrong. Right. And, and it's even more important when, you, when it's just an audio experience. Yeah, because all you have is their name, and, it's, and it's, you don't have anything else. So. Yeah, so, so you'll go to a cemetery with a notebook. Or just go to a, uh, a virtual cemetery. Right on. It, it's, uh, matter of fact, weirdly enough, um, if anybody was to trace the roots of the different survivors in the tower, they would find that they are a weird combination of the survivors of the Titanic. That's amazing. I went down the survivor list and was like, oh, Leopold, that's a great first name. Yeah. And you'll put it with this last name over there. Yeah. I love that. So that I protected the names of the innocent. But yet I was like, you know what? These are all names of survivors. Yeah. Have you gotten any fun fan art? Oh, yeah. We've got a whole bunch of stuff. Like what's some of the stuff? Kind of the offbeat uh, stuff. At, at anything and everything. I have uh, some characters uh, have drawn some of the story that they wish it would have gone. Like uh, two characters that we're not supposed to end up together are now making out. Yes. Uh, I've gotten some some of that. Uh, uh Ink is, uh, which is uh, one of the main antagonists of the story. I've seen a lot of him, Bert. Uh, just the, the depictions of the artist's uh, interpretation of what they see as that character. Because what's really unique is, like, everybody sees them differently. Right. They, there is no visual to start from. Mm-mm. So That's it's, so cool. It's, so it kind of gives a new dimension of fan art because they're not taking the visual reference of what you've already created. It's something completely new. Yeah. 
Now, you obviously started out film, TV. What's your dream job? Do you want to stay in this medium, or if you could do film and TV, you would be like, uh, um, well, film and TV, I'll be quite blunt. Uh, it, you make more money in it. Yeah. And I would love to uh, more easily support my family uh, than, you know, going from piece to piece to piece. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the, the audio drama market is not uh, as big as it needs to be to, to, you know, to get that full sustainment yet. But I think it will be eventually. But right now it's still kind of it's, – it's still – in the early stages of development. Okay, um, for my observation deck questions, you said you would just want to. Oh yeah. You don't even want to pre-pick them. So here we go. I'm, I'm I'm one of those people who uh, <laughs> I like to be surprised. Okay. Have you ever asked anyone for their autograph? Yes, but I don't know who. The I, w- I will say the the one time that I did um, I did want to meet somebody was I was at San Diego Comic Con a couple years ago. Um, and I was at a restaurant. My brother had taken me there for, uh, my birthday. And, um, we were just having this conversation about how I had a friend of mine who took risks in their life and was willing to put themselves out there in any regard and, and, and did things that he normally wouldn't do. And you never know where they end up. And after that conversation was done, we saw in two booths over behind us, George R. R. Martin, or at least the back of him. Wow. We didn't know what was him. We're like, he's got the hat. It looks no, like it th- could be him. It could be him. You don't know. We don't, because like his back was towards us. Because obviously he took that seat to kind of, so people wouldn't pay attention if they knew him. Um, so I was like, okay. Um, and, and my brother's like, why don't we take a risk? Now, he wrote Game of Thrones, right? He did, That's yes. that guy, okay. Uh, and he is, uh, in my opinion, he is one of the best world builders out there. Like, he is an amazing, amazing writer. Um, and so uh, we finally got up the gall, and we're like, okay, you know what? Let's get our, our waitress. Let's, uh, let's see if we can send over a dessert or a wine or something. Offer it to them as a thank you for all the, 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 the entertainment that he's, he's given us over the years uh, because I am just – I'm so pleased with what he's created. Um, and so we did that. Uh, it turned out it was too late. He was, he was getting up to leave. Uh, and we said uh, – and he came over and he said, thank you. I, I, we get to head out though. And, uh, and I was, we were like, thank you very much. We're, you're just a big inspiration to us. And my brother was like, well, I'm here with my brother for, my, for his birthday. And he's like, really? And he takes out of his pocket and he gives me the, one of the coins of the faceless man. <gasps> Which if you know the story of, of, uh, of Game of Thrones, then you know that that is the coin given that's sort of like uh, – it's, it's a favor with the, the faceless men. And to get it from the man who created it himself was like if anybody in the world has a coin that actually has of value and could be used, I feel like I just got it here. And so that was my that was my moment. And That's we got a picture amazing. with him. Just one of the nicest guys in the world. And like one of these uh, these tales of like, you know what, hopefully one day I will be able to to pay it forward with a fan who who does the same for me. I love that it worked out. I once sent a mimosa to Paula Abdul at Arts Deli. That's another story. All right. Oh. <laughs> Have you ever been in a fist fight? Yeah. Uh, mostly in, uh, in my youth. Um, but yes. What movie gave you nightmares? Uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. What were the dreams like? Clowny. Clown- clowny. Um, Clowns are freaky. I was a kid when I saw it. My, my parents worked for RWB at the time, which is a party prop place. So they went to like its premiere, and it was a little indie film. But the makeup on these clowns was so authentic and gross looking, and they drank blood through a straw and like put people in candy. Like, I was a kid when I saw it, and that flipped me up. Yeah, it'll do it. Um, what's something you should probably throw away, but you just can't bring yourself to? Um, I have a hard time giving or, or letting up 
old electronics sometimes. Well, I noticed that you have um, the Atari, the old Atari, My old Atari school. Colicchio, Colicchio yes. Remember here. the joysticks? I, they're all sitting down below there. Yeah. They're all the originals, too. I, uh, I cannot give those away. Um, you shouldn't. Anything, anything that has a connection with my dad um, or my family or like the, I say my dad because the video games were things that he and I played together. He's still around. I'm not saying yeah. he's, he's passed. Um, but like those things I like I hold dear. It's like the mementos of my past. I, people who write me cards, fan letters, they're all in a filing cabinet. If anybody takes the time of give me something that's personal that they have done or made, I cannot get rid of it. This one's kind of a random one. Sure. When was the time in your life when you were in the right place at the right time? <laughs> um, I will say literally I missed an ambush by a little way, very, very, maybe a minute or two that would have destroyed where, what I was in. Oh, my God. So I mean, most of the people that have answered that question are like, well, once I was at a concert and they picked me out of the – I mean, shit, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, – that was – had we left – a little bit later or sooner, who knows? How do you think about that time in your life a lot? I do, but I don't let it control me. Yeah, um, it's I I live I live with the echoes and shadows of, of everything. Then, um, so I can never forget it. But um, and it does define me in a way that I have it influences every day, like the way that I walk into a room, or the way I look at something, the way that I talk, the way that I you know see everything. Um, so yeah, it does. Um, but I also try not to let it control me or skew my perspective of things. You hear a lot of talk about the negative effects or the you know PTSD type stuff. What's something good that you embody now because of that time? Um, the the ever vigilance. Um, I'm hyper aware of what's going on around me, and to to a degree where it's bad and also good because um, I observe things and see sometimes dangers before they happen. Like, um, and just, just instinctively, I'll see somebody driving and I'll be like, get away from that car. Or I'll see just a movement of a car in a certain way. And I'll be like, I know that person's been drinking. I'll move a lane over right. and then I'll see an obvious sign of it then or something like that. So it's one of these things where, um, having that weird gut instinct yeah. behind is a good thing to have. Yeah, I would think so. But also bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it works both ways. What's something that you can't believe you physically hurt yourself doing? In the third grade, I tripped over a patch of grass and, like, shattered my right kneecap. Oh, my gosh. A patch of grass. I was playing Predator at the time. Well, the, the, that – wow. I was dressed up in a, in, in a military garb playing Predator, and I was Arnold Schwarzenegger running around the field because it was dress-up day for Halloween. Of course. Um, and uh, then I tripped over a patch of grass. I – flew and then i hit and landed on my knee and it cracked across oh wow across. um this is kind of a random one this is new what item that you lost misplaced or had stolen would you most like to have back the only thing that the first thing that came to mind i'll just say it was sure as a kid i had a stuffed animal named kirby that i lost somewhere. oh kirby man it was a koala bear um and it was my favorite one and then i lost it somewhere and it was never replaced but you still think about it it, it resonates, yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, the, when you said the first thing, the lost, and I'm like, that was the first yeah. thing that came to mind. Last one here. What's something you're good at that might surprise people? Uh, I'm an expert marksman, but that might not surprise anybody. Um, I can whistle four or five different ways. Okay, bust it out. Okay. There's the traditional. Okay. That's the traditional one, That's right? That's the traditional, okay. Uh, there's the bird. <clears throat> 
Yeah, it's differently produced. Yeah, it's got a different. It's got Subtle. a little bit of cheek fluctuations. Yes. Uh, there is the uh, the smile and whistle, which I can smile and whistle. Awesome. And then there's one that I never really fully developed, but it was the uh, a different like way I did it. It was kind of a lisp uh, whistle, which is. See, I didn't really perfect it, and I haven't worked on it much. It's a work in progress. But that's not done with any hands. Yeah. Where people do the hand manipulation, that's all done with, like, tongue manipulation, things like that. So that's that's my special talent. I I like that. Okay. How can people find out more about what you do and and find out about the book especially since it's just come out? My own personal website is uh, wayland.ws. That's my website. Or if you want to go to the company website, it's waylandproductions.com. And it's W-A-Y-L-A-N-D. W-A-Y-L-A-N-D, uh, productions.com. But if you're interested in the book and creating this stuff, the um, the easy and uh, very reachable address is bombsalwaysbeep.com, which I was very happy to have that URL. I was like, all right. Weren't you relieved? I'm developing something now, a game. Um, and the the, get, the get site now. is available, but they want like three thousand dollars for it. So, uh, but we're you just, know what? We're going to add game to the end of it. And... That's that is an option, but you always have the option of starting there and then going back. Because I'll be honest, when I first started this, um, I the URL we had was thezombiepodcast.com, and then eventually I was able to obtain once it was vacated zombiepodcast.com. Then once I was able to establish myself even more. I was able to, because somebody else has parked the domain, we'realive.com, I was finally able to get we'realive.com. So you didn't have it from the get-go. I did not. That is a good little thing to know. Yeah, so keep keep at it. It took years. It, matter of fact, I didn't get we'realive.com until like two and a half years ago. But did they want a lot of money for it? or They did, but I talked them down. There you go. Well, I'm inspired by that too. Thank you so much for oh, having me down here. Welcome. And it's such an inspiration what you've created. Yeah, thank you very much for, for having me on. This is... Uh, I love talking about this stuff. Okay, good. Last question. Yes. Why do you write? I write for me. I write for the world. And I write to make things better. I like that. We'll leave it there. All right. Thank you so much, Casey. All right. Bye. Bye. A big thank you to Casey Wayland for um, the great interview and the inspiration. Um, If you haven't listened to any of his stuff, you should definitely do it. It's all available on iTunes. Okay. So this happened... I uh, got to do some EPK interviews for ABC television. I got to conduct them. So I was the interviewer. Um, A gentleman named Robert Nunez, who listens to this podcast, uh, thought I might be a good person. They needed somebody to help them do that because their whole team had so much to do at TCA's, which is the Television Critics Association. And so I got to spend the day talking to... uh, showrunners, um, mostly showrunners and some actors, uh, for ABC's new, uh, spring shows, including the revival of Roseanne, which I've seen and is terrific. And I'm so glad it's back. I also got to interview people about this side project that Disney is doing called dream big princess. It's inspired by sort of the Disney princesses and how popular they are. And it's a program meant to inspire young people, particularly young girls to, go after their dreams and persevere and work hard and to dream big, basically. So I got to talk to a number of the actresses from ABC shows like um, Sarah Chalk, who's back on Roseanne. And I also got to talk to Laurie Metcalf, who's also back on Roseanne. And I just want to share this moment that I had with her that was kind of amazing. 
So one of the first questions I asked is, what was your dream when you were a little girl? And she talked about growing up in a small town and that her dream was to be an actor, but she didn't tell anyone. She kept it a secret because it seemed impossible. There didn't seem to be a road where she was, where anyone could do something like that. So she never told anyone. So uh, at the end of the little interview, I, I asked her what that little girl would think about the moment she's having now. Because she's, you know, she just won a Tony last year. She's up for an Oscar, probably. It hasn't come out yet, but she's terrific in Lady Bird, and she might win. And uh, she got really emotional talking about that. And you could see the, the emotion come up in her face. Everyone in the room was a little bit, like, knocked out by it. And it does show you what what access she has to true emotion, um, which I think is part of what makes her a great actor. But I just felt really touched by what she had to say. And the upshot of the story is I want her to win the Oscar now because I love her even more. And uh, I'm grateful to Robert Nunez for um, bringing me in. I had a really great experience. I hope to do more stuff like that. All right, that's enough. Happy 2018. I will catch you next time. This has been Dennis, anyone. Bye.